0: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This show was pre-recorded on June 17th, so we are not taking listener calls or questions at this time. We are interested in your comments, however. You can contact us at news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is the fifth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Our conversation today is about one person, one vote, the Electoral College and the MPV, National Popular Vote. We will talk about the Electoral College. Is it working as intended? And oh, by the way, what was intended? What issues have emerged over time? Is popular election of the president a solution? And where does the National Popular Vote Compact fit in? This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. We're all recording on Zoom today, so we have um, all of our guests on a Zoom conference. Saul Anuzis is the principal and managing partner of Coast to Coast Strategies LLC, which provides strategic planning, political intelligence, political risk assessment, consultation, business development services to clients all over the US and internationally. He previously served as the Michigan Republican Party chair from 2005 to 2009, and he was a candidate for chairman of the Republican National Committee in 2009 and 2011. From 2010 to 2012, Anuzis was Michigan's committee man on the Republican National Committee, an illustrious career. Welcome, Saul. Great to be with you. Thank you. Also on our call today is Mark Brewer. Mark is a professor of political science at the University of Maine, His research interests are in the areas of political behavior, partisanship, and the linkages between public opinion and public policy. He's the author of numerous books, including, with Sandy Mizell, Parties and Elections in America, The Electoral Process. Mark has been on our show a few times, and he's a league favorite. We're very pleased to have you back, Mark.
1: Thank you for having me, in.
0: And finally, with us today is Eileen Reedy. Eileen is a political and nonprofit consultant based in Portland, Oregon. She co-founded the Grassroots Advocacy Group for National Popular Vote in Oregon and now serves as the National Grassroots Director for MPV.org. Glad to have you here, Eileen.
2: Thank you for having me, Anne.
0: Five times in our country's history, we have elected a president of the United States who was not favored by a majority of American people. That happened twice in the last 20 years. As Al Gore quipped, and I quote, you win some, you lose some, and then there's that little known third category. Good heavens. Why do we have the electoral college anyway? Is it fulfilling the founder's intent or is it time to evolve? Mark, um, put it to you first. Put you in the hot seat. Give us Electoral College one hundred and one from the historical point of view. Why do we have an Electoral College anyway, and what were the founders thinking?
1: Well, I mean, they there, there are two important questions, uh, and they're they're very different questions, and they have very different answers. The the easiest one to answer, the the why do we have the Electoral College, is is simply because it was the least objectionable option. That was discussed to the greatest number of delegates at the convention. There are there are a lot of different methods that were floated uh, over the course of the summer in Philadelphia on how to select what would eventually be called the president of the United States, and none of them seemed to be able to generate enough uh, enthusiasm or, moment, or momentum to get adopted. And something that that looked eventually like the electoral college was it was it was. No delegates first choice, but it was for enough delegates, a less objectionable kind of secondary fallback choice that eventually, as they, you know, hurtled towards the end of the convention, it was something they were able to agree on. You know, maybe nobody loved it, but it didn't elicit the kind of venomous dislike that some of the other options did. So so that's the why we, we have it.
0: The national um, popular vote failed very narrowly, though, didn't it? Um.
1: It, it was it was close. Um. But but the people who, people who objected to it very strenuously objected. And and I think it would have been one of those ones where if, if even if they could have gotten the support to push it through, would that have been something that risks splintering the convention? Uh, it's a possibility. Um, in terms of in, it, the intent behind the electoral college, I think you have to look at either individual founders or individual groups of founders. Right for for some uh, founders at the at the convention, the electoral college was a mechanism uh, to prevent um, the ignorant masses from selecting the president. Uh, for other members, um, it was a way uh, to preserve um, kind of a, a state's involvement in the process. Uh, you know, for, for other members, it was a way um, to uh, get it out of the hands of Congress um, so that there would be total separation um, between the executive and the legislative, even though we know total separation is impossible. So there's a there's a lot of different um, reasons there, none of which was shared by um, a majority of the delegates at the convention. I'll
0: kill Reed Amar, he's a you know, famous, I think he's at Yale, uh, constitutional scholar was interviewed in Vox a couple years ago, and he proposed that the rationale for the Electoral College was grounded in slavery. Do you think that's true?
3: Um, I'll I'll, I'll jump in and say I I don't think that's true. Um, I think that if you take a look at um, the aspects of slavery from a constitutional standpoint, that's where they kind of gave them a two-thirds vote versus, you know, being a full person. But I think when people refer to uh, uh, slavery and, and the slavery issue, they're really looking at what happened leading up to and then following the Civil War. And that's when most states moved to what we today refer to as a winner-take-all rule. And so states in the North and states in the South wanted to have reliable electors uh, with regards to picking the president and negotiating the aspects that were involved at that time in picking a president. And so you know, we kind of started out with – states using multiple ways to uh, elect their electors, whether they were by appointment by the governor or election by a state legislature or election by elector districts. And we slowly, going into the Civil War and after the Civil War, I think by 1892, virtually every state in the country had moved to kind of a unit rule, which today we refer to as a winner-take-all rule. So I think slavery was more adjust, uh, was uh, addressed, you know, when they basically gave blacks two-thirds the rights of, a, of a, a white voter at that time.
0: Was that part of it, Mark, the slavery thing? I'll let you weigh in on that, too. I mean, were the people who objected so vociferously to a national popular vote was population distribution part of the objection?
1: Some some delegates um, that objected were um, from the South, but by no means all were. Um, if you Again, if you look at um, the convention delegates and – the primary source, of course, for what went on there is Madison's notes. There's other um, very brief sets of notes as well, but Madison's are the most complete. Is Madison was one of the, the few delegates that actually brought this up, right? Madison recognized. He said, "You know, well, look, um, if we go, um, if we go to a, a national popular vote, that's going to disadvantage um, the slaveholding states. Of which, of course, he was a delegate from one and a slaveholder himself." But that being said, Madison was a, was a popular vote supporter. He said, We're, I'm willing to, to go with that. And he thought that population increase in the South would eventually overcome that. So mm-hmm. I think slavery was thought about in terms of the Electoral College by some of the delegates. But I don't think it I don't think it, I would agree with the that solid that it. I don't do not think that it's a primary um, explanation for why we have.
0: I mean, after after the election in 2016, there was quite a bit of writing that, that um, the divergence between the electoral college outcome and the popular vote outcome was a phenomenon that was likely to happen more often in the future than it had in the past because of the way population distribution is happening in the US, more concentration in urban areas, depopulation in rural areas. Um, Do we need to rethink the Electoral College? Are modern demographics exasperating the fault lines? Eileen, do you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, thanks, Anne. so I think
2: we do need to rethink the Electoral College and also the way that we just think about it broadly, right? Because a lot of people think that the current system, where 48 of our states use winner-take-all laws to award their electors, that's what they think about when we talk about the Electoral College. But that doesn't have to be the way. The winner-take-all law is not in the Constitution, uh, and neither you know, is the congressional district method that Maine and Nebraska use. So I think we need to rethink those state laws for how states are choosing to award their electors because the lack of a national popular vote under our current system is what creates these divergent elections uh, and often causes, I think,
0: crises of legitimacy with our presidents. So, I mean, are these divergent elections a problem? I mean, is this a, a problem that needs to be solved?
3: I don't think, well, I don't think it's a big problem, but I do think it is a problem. As Eileen pointed out, it, it does deal with the poor you know, the whole issue of whether it's a legitimate election. I mean, what we have to remember is the three of us could probably within the next two minutes uh, sit down and and tell you where 40 of the 50 states are going to vote. The reality is four out of five Americans live in a state that is either decidedly Republican or decidedly Democrat. And when you take a look at the statistics, I mean, since 1988, almost 95% of all the resources, all the time spent by presidential candidates is spent in 10 states or less. So what really happens where I think the problem occurs is that we elect the presidents of the battleground states of America versus the president of the United States of America. We really haven't had a true national election. I think what the last presidential candidate that visited all 50 states was Richard Nixon and the reality is he probably shouldn't have done it then either because we really didn't have 50 competitive states. I mean, so we went from the, you know, 40s and 50s where maybe we had 40 some competitive states where today we have at max 10 to 12 potential battleground states, and we usually end up fighting in the last three to six states nationwide. So that's where the distortion, I think, comes in and where the problem comes in because, you know, it affects public policy, it affects politics, and it has a lot of negative effects in the sense. So it's the winner-take-all rule that Eileen was talking about that is really the challenge. To me, the Electoral College isn't a problem because the Electoral College really really just gives states rights to to determine how their electors are chosen. But it's this winner-take-all system that's created the problem.
0: What's your view of the whether the Electoral College is creating a distortion and needs to be, like, rethought? Mark?
1: Well, I, mean, I, I think that it's it's pretty clear that that it, the way that current um, demographics and vote choice lines up that the Electoral College and the way the states are awarding delegates – Um, that there's a distortion being created, right? Um, I think I agree with with, with Saul that it's not so much the Electoral College that's the problem. It's the way in which um, states choose to award their delegates that's creating uh, the primary concern here. And I think really, I think Eileen hit the nail on the head. The, The most concerning element of all of this, and there's a lot of them, but the most concerning element of it all is this idea, this concern that Americans come to view outcomes of presidential elections is illegitimate, right? And we've, I think we've increasingly seen that. We have, we have a potential for a real problem in 2020, um, because, you know, we, we could have a, a, a loser um, who actually stokes that sentiment, right? And uh, that would, to me, would be um, in case of emergency break glass kind of stuff. So I think the legitimacy is a huge concern.
0: So you alluded to um, and Eileen, you can jump in on this too, because I've heard you speak about this before, but you alluded to the way in which the um, the swing state emphasis affects not only who wins the presidency, but affects public policy and federal funding in those states. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more?
3: Sure. I, I think that you could make a fairly strong assertion that we have ethanol because of Iowa. We have prescription D because of Florida. Uh, we have steel tariffs because of Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan that were passed by, for instance, a free trade Republican governor. And so what we find is it really doesn't matter whether there's a Republican or a Democrat in the White House, whoever is in the White House or whoever is campaigning for the White House very much is aware that how the winner-take-all system affects the electoral college votes. And so, again, if you know that four out of five Americans, I mean, California is the largest state in the country and really nobody on a presidential level ever campaigns there or cares what they think because we know today that California is going to go Democrat at the same time, Texas, you know, second largest state happens to be a Republican state. And so whether you're a Republican or Democrat, you can argue the shifting demographics over time, but right now it's a solidly Republican state. And so, you know, you find for instance, you know, battleground states tend to get about 7% more federal funding than non battleground states they're twice as likely to get an exemption from uh, a federal policy like a no child left behind or anything else. They very often are more likely to be the place that a, a cabinet secretary is chosen from or a judicial uh, candidate is chosen from to go on the federal court. And so you have this both public policy distortion and political distortion that gives those battleground states a disproportionate amount of influence when you know it doesn't matter whether you're big or small, Great examples are, are California and Texas, and it doesn't matter if you're little. You take a look at Vermont or, uh, you know, Hawaii, who will both pass the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact as an example. Big states and small states are both concerned because nobody's paying attention to them because they're not battleground states. And that's what, you know, I think that, you know, uh, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact does. It makes sure that every voter in every state is politically relevant every time. Because it doesn't matter whether you live in Maine or California or in a battleground state, one vote will equal one vote around the country.
0: Pause on that thought. We're going to come back to it after I say a few words. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is One Person, One Vote, the Electoral College and the National Popular Vote. Our guest are Saul Anousis, Principal and Managing Partner of Coast to Coast Strategies, Mark Brewer, Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Eileen Revy, National Grassroots Director at National Popular Vote. This show was prerecorded on June 17th. No listener calls are being taken. So I get, I'm hearing a, a rationale for reform. Is there an argument, I mean, who's arguing to keep it the same, Mark? I mean, what is there, is there a, uh, a strong argument to leave things as they are?
1: Uh, in my opinion, no. Uh, I mean, I, I think there's a strong argument for leaving the Electoral College in place. I think there's a very strong argument for that. On the other hand, leaving the Electoral College in place as it currently stands, in my opinion, and some would disagree with me, I do not think that there's a, a strong argument, strong normative argument for that. Um, I, I do think, you know, that when you've got um, 75, 80 percent of, of Americans who realize their presidential vote isn't going to make much of a difference, that that's that's a problem. Right. I think that's a huge problem. So the Electoral College reasons to keep it. Absolutely. Reasons to keep it as is, uh, in my opinion, no.
0: So, Eileen, give us, um, you know, Mark gave us Electoral College 101. Let me ask you to give us National Popular Vote Compact 101. Just very quickly explain to our listeners how it would work.
2: So the National Popular Vote Bill will guarantee the presidency to the candidate who receives the most popular votes across all 50 states and DC. So this bill ensures that every vote in every state will matter in every election and it works by utilizing the clause in the Constitution that says each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. So our proposal replaces state winner-take-all laws with a new law that awards the state's electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote. But it only goes into effect when enough other states have signed on to this agreement that it would guarantee the presidency to the national popular vote winner, which currently is a majority of the Electoral College or 270 electoral votes. How many
0: have signed on already?
2: So 16 jurisdictions with 196 electoral votes have looked at this legislation, determined it was the best for the citizens of their state, and passed the law.
0: What other reforms are being considered? You know, not just just this one, but, you know, some people want to abolish the Electoral College. I think nobody on this call is advocating that, but that's out there. But what other ideas are being thrown around?
2: Um, so the other reforms for the Electoral College, uh, some people propose the system that Maine uses, which is where uh, whoever gets the most votes within each congressional districts gets the electoral vote for that district. And then whoever wins the most votes statewide gets two electoral votes overall. Um, so that system you know, in my opinion, it doesn't make every vote equal. It doesn't uh, mean that candidates are going to have to campaign all over the country. Uh, and it would further incentivize gerrymandering across the country if states were to do that, which I think is something that a lot of people really don't want in this in these times.
0: I've also seen one about um, expanding Congress so that there would be more congressional districts, which would, you know, make the gradations a little bit finer. Mark, what do you think about uh, – you know, this array of possible reforms?
1: Well, I mean, I, they all have positives and, and negatives to them. Um, I think if I, if, if push came to shove, I would probably throw my support behind um, a model like the one that Maine and Nebraska uses would probably be you know, my preferred reform. Although Eileen's point about gerrymandering is a real concern. If I were to go in that direction, I would also want to couple that with um, nonpartisan um, district drawing boards. You know, some states use um, courts; some have special boards of retired judges. I uh, think either would work, uh, as long as the state is nonpartisan. Judicial elections, which is another matter. Um, I also would be open to a system where um, popular vote. It, within a state uh, determines statewide determines the division of the electoral votes of the state. And you'd have to set where the limits are, you know, thresholds of viability and okay, if it's a 60, 40 split, um, 40%, 60, there'd be things to work out, but I, I think I'd also be supportive of, of that. Um, I'm not a big fan of expanding Congress. I think Congress is relatively large and unwieldy as is. Um, so making it bigger, um, to solve this problem might create a whole host of, of others. Um, if 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 what you're looking for is a national popular vote, which I'm I'm not, but if if you were, um, I think the 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 cleanest way that you and the real way you should try and go about it is amending the Constitution to or the Electoral College, which I don't support, but to do that and get a national popular vote, I think that's the cleanest way to do it.
0: Let me go back to that Nebraska and Maine way and and even the one about um, proportional representation, Mark, because one of the objections I've heard to those is that, um, you know, who's going to go first? Like California is not going to go before Texas and, you know, you're going to like trade off a Republican state versus a Democratic state. I mean, do you like need a compact to do that so that everybody goes at the same time?
1: it's a good point. I'm an academic. I don't have to worry about reality in a lot of instances, <laughs> but but yes, there, there is a real world concern there that, that no state's going to want to be the one to make the jump first, especially no big states. There might be some smaller states. Who it, I, think. I, mean, I think there's a reason why you see Maine and Nebraska are the only states that give you things up this way, because there's not a whole lot of electoral votes there. I mean, when you're talking, I don't know what California is now, 50 something, I believe, if I'm correct. Uh, That's a lot of... A lot of votes on the table, right? So it's a concern. I don't know how you'd you'd overcome that. A compact is one way to do it. I have questions about the constitutionality of that, but um, that's that's maybe for a later question.
0: Yeah. Well. So, Saul, so what what do you think? At, like to Mark's point, like if what you really want is a national popular vote, why not just get the constitutional amendment and abolish the electoral college?
3: Well, there's there's a couple reasons not to do that. Number one is is look, I think what one thing Mark points out that I think is important that I just want to jump back to is that, you know, he as an academic, he doesn't have to look at reality. Uh, the truth is that one of the problems here is, is that we have this situation where we do have to look at what the political realities are, right? So the reason I think that a proportional system wouldn't work is that with, if you were in a Republican state, why would a Republican give up a proportional number of votes in their state so to give it to a Democrat? If you're in a Democratic state, why would you do the, you know, the same? So you have a very real political, you know, uh, obstruction to having that happen. The same thing is true with proportionality. I mean, if you're in a Republican or a Democratic state, giving up the proportional vote of someone else really doesn't make political sense. So I think from a practical standpoint, you know, something like the uh, national popular vote, whether it was a constitutional amendment or an interstate compact, would have a more realistic chance of doing it. because. In the end, what you ultimately argue is the one man, one woman, one vote scenario is quintessentially fair. Whether you like it or not, agree with it or not, it, it at least comes up to a certain degree of fairness. Um, I think that the problem is, you know, you, you take a look at the congressional district plan. If right now we elect the president of the battleground states of America, we would start electing the president of the battleground congressional districts of America. So now, rather than worrying about the auto industry for Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Ohio we'd be worrying about the Mayo Clinic and the one swing seat in Minnesota, or we'd be looking for, you know, whatever your 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 equivalent area would be, the swing seat in, in, in Maine. And so you kind of take a bigger problem that now has three to six to 10 battleground states, and then you create it with 40 to 45 to no more than 55, you know, uh, swing um, uh, congressional districts, not to mention the gerrymandering problem. So what happens is, The problem with the constitutional amendment is it basically takes away what I think is a very important state's right. Um, The founders, I think rightfully so, turned this over to the states. And really the only thing the electoral college does is it guarantees that the states get to set their own rules with regards to how their elections are run and how they're handled. And so you know, each state has its own personality, each state has its own history, has its own traditions. And so they both vote in different ways, they handle their voting in different ways, uh, some states, lo- you know, love the mail-in system. Other states think that's the the, the worst, you know, thing that could happen. Um, other states, you know, are talking about lowering the uh, uh, voting age. Other states want to change, the, you know, there's so there's all kinds of things, and each one is done at the state level, and that's important. And secondly, if you move to an interstate compact where states, you know, basically join this compact, they can also get out of the compact if there are unintended consequences by a state having passing a law to remove the winter, you know, remove the national popular Vote interstate compact. So that's kind of like a, a protection. Um, and from a federalist kind of conservative Republican perspective, it's very important for, you know, my side of the aisle to kind of be on, you know, to have that protection there. And so as you look at having a national consensus, and because we're very much trying to have this national popular vote interstate compact be passed and supported by a bipartisan group of people, you know, part of the compromise is saying, look, states' rights are important. By hanging on to those states' rights, you get the protections, you get the back door out, you get, you know, an ability to participate. And that's why, like, I don't think you'd have a single Republican supporting a national popular vote, con- you know, constitutional convention, because they would feel that all the states would lose their power, Department of Justice would run these elections, and, you know, you can play the politics of who's going to be in charge at one time. So, you know, do we have you know, bar on one side or or, um, holder on another and you cause all kinds of political.
0: Well, you're sending me down an interesting track here, Saul, and I want to ask the question about why Democrats should support this, why Republicans should support it in a minute. But before we lose the track, I want to let Mark pose his questions about the constitutionality of the compact form and let you guys address that question because it's an important one.
1: Well, I mean, you know, the the Constitution does uh, call uh, for if, if states are going to enter into a compact with one another, that they have to have congressional approval for this. Um, now, the courts have ruled in a number of cases over the years um, that some interstate, compact, interstate compacts have been, without congressional approval, have been past constitutional muster, but in those same decisions, they've also alluded to the fact that a compact that aimed at enhancing a certain group of states' power vis-a-vis other states or vis-a-vis the federal government would require congressional approval or else it would fail constitutional muster. And in my view, the Interstate Vote Compact does uh, enhance some states' political prerogatives or power over others. And, and, and again, in my view, which could be wrong, and the court certainly would have to uphold, would require congressional approval. And uh, I'm, I'm, I am I'm know Eileen disagrees on that. So uh, I'd be interested to hear the response. Go yeah. For it. Uh,
2: so, I, I mean, I, I agree with your premise. You know, the Supreme Court precedent is that uh, congressional consent is not required if a, a interstate compact, uh, unless it Uh, threatens federal supremacy. Um, So we do not think that this threatens federal supremacy because it is an inherent right explicitly spelled out to be a right of the state legislature in the Constitution. Um, However, you know, if the Supreme Court decides to overturn over 100 years of case law and decide that we need to get congressional consent, then at that moment would be the appropriate time to then go and seek congressional consent the same way that we've uh, lobbied this bill in front of 50 state legislatures.
3: Yeah, and I'll just, I just want to add one thing is that it, there's actually several um, Supreme Court rulings that basically said that, um, It's not a function of a state having an influence or changing the influence over another state because when New York moved, as an example, to the winner-take-all rule, smaller states actually sued and said, hey, you're going to have disproportionate power because you're such a big state. And, you know, the Supreme Court said the state of New York has the right to do that. It is, that's the constitutionality. It's really the federal supremacy that is the question. Um, I personally, I'm not afraid of of a congressional consent. I mean, I think if a majority of the states actually pass it, you're going to have probably a majority of the congressional delegations and in, in all those states saying, this is what my people wanted. This is what our legislature did. And they'll probably pass. I mean, in the end, I think that debate will probably happen anyways. Um, th- there will probably be a hundred lawsuits on this from different sides arguing why it is or isn't constitutional. Um, you know, equal protection. Uh, th- there's going to be a lot of different ones. I mean, we are a litigious society. So Uh, But in the end, I think, you know, I happen to be a strict constructionist. Um, You know, you read the Constitution and it clearly gives the states the right and the power to do that. Um, You know, if I could convince the state of Michigan to say, you know, guys who are six foot four, Lithuanian background, blue eyes, (laughs) used to have blonde hair should be, you know, electors. If they passed it, it would actually be constitutional. So it's a pretty broad power and, and a supreme power in that regard.
0: You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests are Saul Anuzas, Principal and Managing Partner of Coast to Coast Strategies, Mark Brewer, Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Eileen Reeve, National Grassroots Director at National Popular Vote. Our topic today is One Person, One Vote, the Electoral College and the National Popular Vote. This show was pre-recorded on June 17th, so we're not taking listener calls or questions today. We are interested in your comments, though. You can email us at news at w-e-r-u Please put democracy form in the subject line. Uh, ready to turn the page on to why Democrats should support this, why Republicans should support this? I mean, in... Maine, we had a legislative vote on this in the first session of the legislature that was narrowly divided, mostly along partisan lines. So I, I think the question top of mind here in Maine is, why should Maine Republicans support this? And Saul, since you're a Republican, maybe I'll ask you.
3: Well, look, I, I think for a couple of reasons. One is that, uh, first of all, I think that Republicans tend to knee-jerk against this for the wrong reason. Um, you know, when I first heard about it, my reaction, to be honest with you, was fairly similar. I thought it, it was a communist plot that got the Constitution, and <laughs> Al Gore president. Um, and, you know, then as Paul Harvey would famously say, I kind of took a look at the rest of the story. Um, my, my principal reason for backing this proposal is I want to make sure that every vote in every state is politically relevant every time. I mean, I come from a quintessential swing state that, you know, is kind of a purple state that can go red under the right circumstances. So, you know, Republicans win every once in a while in Michigan. When we lose, we lose a close one and and we're relevant. But when we're not, we're completely not relevant. And I think that really perverts public policy and politics. And that is the number one reason that I think, you know, that it ought to be there. Secondly, I think it's quintessentially fair. I mean, we elect over 514,000 elected officials in this country, all of them who are elected by whoever gets the votes, most votes, but one. And that happens to be the only office that represents every citizen in the United States of America. So I think that there's a little bit of an issue in that regard where I, you know, both from a a credibility standpoint, uh, both from, you know, making sure that everybody feels comfortable as of who represents the country as a whole. The idea that the people of America and every state participating in every vote counting and making sure whoever won on either side uh, happens to have that mandate from the American people, I think is a very strong one. And from a partisan perspective, look, I personally believe this is a center right nation, just like the Democrats on the other side would argue it's a center left nation. So for me, it's a function of let the best man woman win. I mean, let's put put our ideas in front of the American people, make our best case to the American people, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. I mean, if I can't carry the day or my party can't carry the day or my candidate can't carry the message across this country and win an election, we don't deserve to win an election. So, you know, I would tell Maine Republicans, look, if you feel good about what we stand for, if you feel confident in the issues and the principles that we believe are our issues that make us Republicans and the reason we're engaged, we should not be afraid to take that argument to the American people. And, uh, you know, it may have a negative effect in your home state, you know, you may not win Maine, but if you were a member of the interstate compact and you were part of the national popular vote, you would be sure as a Republican that your vote would matter in every single election. And so it doesn't matter if you're in a Democrat state or a Republican state. Under under a reform system, your vote would count every time. And I think that's a very powerful uh, position to be in and, and one I'm more than happy to take and, and fight with the other side on issues and candidates.
0: Now, Mark, partisan politics is your specialty. How does this look from your angle? Why do you think Republicans have been resisting and why do you think...
1: If I were a Republican Party operative, I would I would fight against this tooth and nail, right? And the reason is 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 relatively simple. I mean, Republicans have won the national popular vote for president once uh, in the last I mean since ninety two, right? They've they've won a grand total of one time, um, yet they've captured the presidency three times, right? So it, it's in and of itself. The policy isn't inherently Democratic or Republican uh, in terms of who it benefits and who it harms. But in the current state of American politics, this the national popular vote would be more beneficial to Democrats than it would be to Republicans. Uh, I don't I, I think there's very little doubt about that. Um, so if I were a Republican, I would not want to engage in it. If I were a Democrat, I would be all in, in favor of it, for sure. I'd be I'd be lining up uh, to, to sign on the dotted line.
3: Can I respond to that? Sure. Well, look, I, I'll respectfully disagree with that in, in the sense of this, is that we haven't run a national popular vote election. So the premise that Democrats have carried the national popular vote, Republicans have only won once. Um, you know, I would kind of paraphrase President Trump, who, who would have said, look, I would have preferred to have had a national popular vote because I would have campaigned differently. The fact is that 95% of all presidential visits and all presidential resources are spent in 10 states or less. So we don't spend a dime in California. We don't spend a dime in New Hampshire. We don't, or I'm sorry, we do in New Hampshire. We don't spend a dime in, in uh, uh, Texas or, or Oklahoma because we know where four out of five of these states are going to vote. So to make that kind of assumption, I, I think that what you're saying is intuitively where a lot of Republicans knee-jerk against the national popular vote. But you have to take a step back and say, but wait a minute, we really haven't run a national popular vote. And I think there's examples where I can show you anecdotally, because you won't tell until we actually have one. But, you know, this no longer is a function of how big your state is and where you're at. It's a function of where the margins come out. And when you take a look at a, a, a swing state or a competitive state, they end up, they end up having about a 72 to 75 percent voter turnout because people know their vote actually counts. If you look at a non-competitive state, it drops down to like 50%, 52%. You can even go to a state like Oklahoma, which happens to be like the second most Republican state in the country. And they're down to like 46 to 48% voter turnout because both sides know their vote really doesn't count in a presidential year. So I think that Republicans intuitively knee jerk against this for the reasons that you stated. But if you actually took a look at demography and you took a look at how campaigns were run and what voter turnout is around the country, if you, if you go back maybe like, I think, let's say this entire century, and you counted up all the national popular votes that were currently cast, we would be within a couple hundred thousand votes. And that's, again, with the idea that most states don't even really participate in a competitive manner. So I think that's a little bit of an oversimplification mark. I mean, I, I think that it is intuitively what people think. But if, if as a strategist, you go in there, I mean, Look, I happen to sit on the NRA's National Board's Public Affairs Committee. You know, we've got 52 million Second Amendment supporters in this country. And on a given election day, we turn out 25 to 30 million. Why? We only turn out voters in competitive seats or swing states. Um, and so whether you're on the right or the left, I mean, if you're not in a competitive state, you're not turning out your voters. And so I think you really can't say, what a, you know, which side of national popular vote would would benefit.
0: You want to chime back in on that, Mark? I've got a question for Eileen otherwise.
1: Well, I mean, I think they're all valid points. I mean, I, I um, would would disagree with that. I guess I'd throw two other reasons out there uh, for why, in the current state of affairs, I see the national popular vote being something that would be more beneficial to Democrats and Republicans. One is in terms of um, population density. Um, Dem- Republicans tend to do much better in places with lower population densities. Um, if you were to, to go uh, to a national popular vote, um, I think that yes, you would you would have parties competing all over in, in lots of different places, um, but I think they would still cluster towards where the, the most voters are. And then the other the other thing I guess I'd throw out there is that. It, it's, it's, not, it's not directly tied to the national popular vote, but it's related to it nonetheless. At various points in American political history, we, throughout American political history, the parties have fought over who gets to vote. And at certain points in American political history, generally speaking, one party wants to make participation easier, um, and the other party wants to make it more difficult for some or for all right? Because higher turnout tends to benefit one party over the other. And if you look at right now where the fights are over um, voter participation, overwhelmingly, it's the Democratic Party that wants to make participation easier and the Republican Party that wants to make participation harder. And, And people talk about, oh, this is about fraud or this is about, it's about pure politics. And it's been that way throughout American political history. And it's not that one side at every point in time Higher, ben- higher turnout doesn't benefit the same party at every point in time. And lower turnout doesn't benefit the same party at every point in time. But where we are right now, higher turnout benefits Democrats, lower turnout benefits Republicans. And so I, I think that relates into how you should reason, if you're a partisan, in my view, about the, the national popular vote.
0: Now, Eileen, you've spent a bit of time. You want to jump in on that? I've got another question for you, though. I just wanted to briefly address the idea
2: that, you know, Democrats do better in densely populated areas. This is a common thing that comes up when people are talking about national popular vote, is that Democrats are just going to go to the cities and run up their vote totals. But if you look at the 100 largest U.S. cities, number 100 on that list is Spokane, Washington, with 205,000 people. That is not a big thriving liberal metropolis, and that's 19% of the American population. On the flip side, as defined by the U.S. census, rural America also makes up 19% of the U.S. population. So rural America is roughly 60-40 Republican Democrat. Those 100 cities are the inverse. And the real campaign for who the next president of America would be would be run in all across the country, especially in the suburbs, which is where 60% of the people live and where people are split 50-50. So we really have to, once you look at the numbers, I think that gets dispelled a little bit because you realize, oh yeah, LA and New York City are big, but there's a lot of people all around the country.
3: And i I'd just like to add one, one quick point to that is not only is the geography going to be less important because of the points that Eileen pointed out, but today both Republican parties and Democratic parties use micro-targeting. And so we are no longer looking at cities and counties and how they vote. I mean, we literally, you know, I can tell you on the Republican side, we've got over 4,000 pieces of information of every voter in the country. And I can come in and say, look, I think there's 42% chance you're going to vote Republican. I think there's, you know, 15% chance Eileen's going to vote Republican, et cetera, based on what our demographics are, what we've identified on each voter. And so, and the same thing is true on the democratic side. So what happens under a national popular vote Literally, both sides and all the campaigns will be going after every voter in every state because everyone will be politically relevant, and geography will be blurred in that regard because I will want to turn out a Republican voter wherever they are, and the Democrats going to want to turn out a Democratic voter wherever they are. And so whether you're in Maine or in California, every Republican vote there will be important, and whether you're in Maine and California, every, every Democratic vote will be important. And that's the beauty, to me, of what changes in a, in an, under a national popular vote. Uh, process.
0: So, Eileen, you, you spent a bit of time in Maine, and you know, Mark, obviously, you live in Maine. I mean, one of the things you know, I went back the last time we ran this legislation and looked at how many times Maine Republicans in CD2 had won an electoral college vote. You know, and over the last 30 years, they had achieved like 45% of the popular vote, but they got one electoral vote in all those years. It was a minuscule percent compared to their overall representation. You know, why do you think Maine Republicans in CD2 fear the loss of some kind of power through the national popular vote?
2: Because when you've been ignored for maybe the 26 years before that, and you suddenly have attention. Very recently, you think, "Oh, maybe this is working for us. Maybe this is just the cycle of things that your time comes around, and we're relevant right now, and we might be relevant again." So why do we want to give that up? But so I understand that perspective. But do you really want to rely on that? Do you want to say, "Hey, your chance might come around every thirty years, uh, but you also might move, and then that state's just had it, and it's not. You're not going to be in a battleground state for the rest of your life." No, I think that you should say, I want to be relevant in every single election, whether I live in CD1 or CD2 or in any other state in the country. And, you know, the national popular vote makes your vote relevant
0: in every election. What do you think, Mark, why Republicans in CD2 should consider a reform?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think Aileen's point is right is in that, and you, you raised this as well, is that despite you know, getting 40 to 45 or even more percent of the vote in recent years, they've only managed to get the, an electoral vote once, right? Um, so that that being said, I, I do think that the nature of not only the Republican Party in Maine's second congressional district, but really the nature of the Republican Party in Maine has changed dramatically. Even in the, I've been here now almost 20 years. And the, when I first moved here, the main Republican Party was much more Susan Collins, if you would say, and today the main Republican Party is much more Paula Page, Donald Trump, and I think, especially that's especially true in Maine's second congressional district. If you drive around the second CD, um, that is Trump country for sure, and I think for those Republicans, it, it the fact that the national party fits them right now in a way that probably hasn't in, in any time in recent memory, that might be another part of why they're resistant on this. I don't know that, but that's just, that, that's uh, a hunch.
0: We're at a little station break here. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests are Saul Anuzis, uh, Principal and Managing Partner of Coast to Coast Strategies. Mark Brewer, professor of political science at the University of Maine, and Eileen Revy, National Grassroots Director at National Popular Vote. This program was prerecorded on June 17th. No listener calls are being taken. And we're running into the last few minutes, and we still have some questions. I know we want to get answered here. So um, one question I, Eileen, and I, I know you've answered this a couple times before be, when you come to Maine, but, you know, we're a ranked choice voting state and we're trying to hang on to ranked choice voting in presidential elections and the petitions were submitted and we're waiting to see whether they're going to certify, blah, blah, blah. But if Maine had both ranked choice voting and presidential elections, and the National Popular Vote Compact passed in enough states to put it into effect, where would that leave us with ranked choice voting?
2: Yeah, so our bill and ranked choice voting address different problems of the electoral system, and they can work in a complementary fashion. Um, So if Maine were to have uh, ranked choice voting and be a part of the National Popular Vote Compact, Maine would report out their presidential votes for the purposes of determining the national popular vote winner. So votes that would logically be based on who each voter's first choice uh, preference was. Now, if Maine has RCV and Oregon does, and California does, and Texas does, and all of those states are also a part of the National Popular Vote Compact. The electoral reform group Fair Vote has suggested uh, that they themselves enter into an interstate compact to work in tandem with the National Popular Vote that would result in a ranked choice voting tally within those states that would report out final numbers for the um, top candidates after running the ranked choice uh, vote tally. So there is a way to have both. Um, I think it's a little complicated for when people are thinking about it. But uh, yeah, we, we can certainly have both. And if ranked choice voting, uh, if you know your initiative passes this fall, we certainly are still going to be there advocating for me to join the National Popular Vote Compact.
0: Yeah. But if we were the only ones like we are now, like a lone wolf on ranked choice voting, but we had the 270, I mean, would that kind of muck up the compact a little bit?
2: It wouldn't muck it up. Um, I just think the the benefit that people think that they're getting from ranked choice voting, you might not feel like it's realized in that particular election. But I think that's where you look at the long lens of, okay. We've, we fought for it. We had it for the way of choosing our elector for maybe one election. Then we achieved collectively nationwide. We improved the nationwide system to be one person, one vote. And then Maine can continue to lead the way to be an example of how other states can join the compact and use ranked choice voting to continually improve the system.
0: So what other states are working on this right now besides, I mean, Maine, I guess will pick it back up in 2021. Are other states debating this right now?
2: Um, Not right now, no. Uh, Just, you know, a lot of most state legislatures are not meeting right now. Uh, We were lobbying for this bill earlier this year in Virginia uh, and passed the Virginia House for the first time uh, this year. And the bill was carried over. So we're hoping that Virginia will uh, be the next state to join in early 2021. Um, You know, my job is working with volunteers. So I work with people all across the country. We have a volunteer group in Florida and in Texas and in Pennsylvania. Uh, and, you know, we go where the people are that want to support this initiative.
0: What can people in Maine do right now if they're interested in supporting this
2: yeah. So the easiest thing you could do is pull out your phone. Um, if you go to nationalpopularvote.com slash M E for Maine, uh, that'll take you to a form where you can write a letter to your state legislatures uh, to ask them to pass national popular vote. Um, you can get involved by also on our website, uh, getting involved with the citizens advocacy group that we have in Maine uh, to be a part of the people calling for this change. You know, if, in you know Maine, you have uh, so many state legislators. You probably know who your legislator is. They might be knocking on your door sometime too soon to ask for their vote, for your vote, excuse me. Uh, and so when you do, they do that, you can say, hey, do you have an opinion about this bill? I think it's really important. Uh, do you have a stance on it? And just do all those kinds of advocacy. Um, but definitely, our website is a good way to get involved with our local advocacy group.
0: This has been a pretty interesting conversation. We've got a few minutes left to go on our... F- on our time slot but I want to give you each chance to sort of wrap up with some summarizing thoughts and you know put this all um, back in, in a bigger picture context so um, Saul, so maybe I'll let you go first if you don't mind what would you like to wrap be the last thing that people hear from you on this show today in terms of the national popular vote
3: Well, I would just say as as a Republican that, number one, um, you know, don't take a knee-jerk position uh, one way or the other about this and take a little deeper look as to what it actually means. Because I think the idea that every vote in every state would be politically relevant every time is very attractive and makes a lot of sense for us as Republicans. Number two, I do believe that it's a center-right nation, and if it's not, I'm willing to make the argument why it should be and could go that way. So I do not think that people should be politically afraid of that. And uh, number three, that, you know, this is a very realistic reform. It is constitutional. It is exactly what the founders intended us to do. And hopefully, um, you know, we will exercise that right and uh, institute a national popular vote that, that uh, would be good for the country, would be good for the state, would be good for the party that I, that I believe in and, and uh, am willing to fight for with regards to politically and philosophically.
0: Is Michigan, your home state, one of those that has joined the compact, Saul? So?
3: Uh, yes, it is. And, um, you know, we've introduced it. We've actually passed it in the House, which was controlled by the Republicans. And we have it out um, on, uh, you know, we have interviews out around the country or opportunities around the country and other Republican states. So there's a lot uh, there's a lot of Republicans who have come on board on this. Uh, former National Chairman Michael Steele is in favor of it. Uh, former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich. Uh, Congressman Tom Cole out of Oklahoma, who's considered one of the most politically savvy uh, Republican members of the, of the congressional delegation. So you're finding a lot of bipartisan support, and there's a lot of bipartisan opposition as well. But it is an issue that is worth debate. It is an issue that is worth keeping an open mind to. And since I love lobsters, I hope to be in Maine talking to some of <laughs> the Republicans up there and seeing if I can convince them to uh, keep an open mind and, and move this thing forward.
0: That could happen. Mark, why don't you go next? Um, You've got a couple minutes to summarize your thoughts on this conversation. Go ahead.
1: Well, I, th- I think this is, a, this is an incredibly important Topic: The idea of people's each vote counting is one that I, I would hope that we would all uh, strive to to uh, embrace and, and make that actually reality. Um, the the one other thing I guess I'd I'd add on this um, the presidential selection process is I do I do think that for the despite the fact that that the founders had a lot of different views on how the president should be selected. One thing that the vast majority of them agreed on um, was that the states needed to have a role in this. Um, there was disagreement over what that role looked like, but they, the vast majority of them agreed states needed to have a role in the selection process. I think the Electoral College does that. And I think there, even though there's been a lot of change in the United States between the founding era and today, I still think that federalism is an important element of the American experiment. Um, and I think that state involvement, a state role in the presidential selection process, is an important component and a valuable component. And I would, I would hope um, that we would be able to keep that um, while addressing some of these other ills that we know are out there in the presidential selection process.
0: Thanks, Mark. Um, We're sort of right on time for our wrap-up here, Eileen, and you've got a couple minutes, so you don't have to go too fast, but give us your summarizing thoughts here at the end of the show.
2: Yeah. So the National Popular Vote Compact, I think, is the perfect way, honestly, to address the issues that we've discussed while preserving states' rights. I mean, we, I love the fact that I was able to lobby for this by driving an hour from my house and talking to people and state legislators in my state and be able to change something that's going to change the way that the country is run for decades to come. I think that that's powerful, that citizens can engage with their local state legislators and that that is the appropriate way to make this change because it's utilizing that state power. Um, So, you know, I just think if if you look around as a voter, whether you're in Maine or wherever you are in the country, do you think your vote should be equal to everyone else? Should you be able to move and have your vote for president be counted equally as everyone else? Because people are mobile, uh, they they go all over, and the one office in the entire country uh, that has jurisdiction over everyone is the president, and that's the one where we don't allow, uh, don't have it where that the most person who gets the most votes necessarily wins. So I think that's something that it's time to be corrected. The National Popular Vote Compact is a reform whose time has come, in my opinion, and I hope that the listeners on this show uh, maybe will agree with us and want to help us out by passing it in Maine.
0: You're coming back to Maine in the fall?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah. we, we advocate for this uh, you know, all over the country and, and work with volunteers and volunteer leaders in the country. Um, I, I don't know that we'll be anywhere, honestly, with COVID. Uh, so I think that's maybe true. That's no, it's true. That
0: right. <laughs> well, we are now just about out of time. Um, I want to say thank you to our guests on this show. It was a great conversation. Saul Anuzis is Principal and Managing Partner of Coast to Coast Strategies. Mark Brewer is Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine. And Eileen Revi is the national grassroots director at National Popular Vote. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM, streaming live at WERU.org. Our website is LWVME.org. For more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in this series, you can subscribe to our podcast. At lwvme.org or email us down east at lwvme.org. Coming up next, Counter Spin followed by Between the Lines on your community radio station, WERU FM. Thanks, everyone.